a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. Welcome to Indubitably. Today we're going to be talking to you about designer babies. Are those babies that are like wearing Prada? <laughs> no, the baby is, I suppose, the brand in this case. Designer babies are babies originated either from embryos created by in vitro fertilization and selected because of the presence or absence of particular genes, or a baby created by genetic interventions into pre-implantation embryos in the attempt to influence the traits the resulting children will have. To uh, put this into English, parents who look to take advantage of these processes are literally trying to design their children by selecting diseases or conditions that they would like to avoid. Uh, And those procedures are utilized currently with various degrees of extent and success. But also on a more theoretical level, there's a strong reason to believe that in the not-so-distant future, we will have the ability to influence the likelihood of other traits babies might be born with, their height, eye color, intelligence, etc. We'll be exploring all of these possibilities today, from the current medically-driven efforts that take place right now on a regular basis, to the more superficial or aesthetically motivated future that we might be moving towards. We'll talk benefits, risks, as well as some of the ethical questions that are raised by this ironically evolving technology. That sounds like a lot of uh, medical technology and science fiction talk. Um, So luckily to help us sort through it, we have a guest for today's episode. Dr. Isaac L. Call is a resident physician at Oregon Health and Science University. Prior to medical school, his research was in the basic sciences, specifically at Portland State University. He was part of a team that helped in forwarding our understanding of the RNA world hypothesis, a theoretical model that attempts to help us understand the biochemical origins of life. While doing that work, he was directly involved with design of RNA robozymes, and part of his work involved designing MNRA sequences. Since college, he has moved into the clinical world, working as a family doctor, and his research has been reoriented towards learning more about interventions that may help overcome the barriers posed by social determinants of health. Welcome, Isaac. Thanks, guys. Uh, A fun topic. What might be a helpful basis for everybody today is to understand what we're actually talking about in terms of what we're actually capable of doing with science and learning a little bit more about the history and the science of genetic selection with a very brief overview. So very briefly, um, we have a large scale on what we think of as genetic modification. Everything from Darwinian selection, think animals adapting to their environment, all the way to selecting each and every gene that a genome might have. And so there's a couple of different layers in between that. First is Darwinian evolution. The organism through generations will adapt its environment. Then we can think of another level, artificial selection. This is like trying to breed wolves to have more domesticated features um, until we get our little lap dog. We can go even further. Nowadays, we can make genetically modified organisms. Think of the bananas that we have on our shelves today. Most of those are actually GMOs. And the old world banana no longer exists in the world. And that's something I, I think people are typically scared by the term genetically modified when it comes to their food. But really all we're doing is breeding two different types of food in a way that makes both of them work better for us. Yeah. And that's ultimately what ends up happening when we're finding these fruit, these uh, these specific features. And we could take it a little bit further than that. We can start actually adding genes into the into the mix. This is something that's done in nature. Bacteria have been known to be able to grab genes from other bacterial species. And oftentimes some of the biggest resistances that we have in bacteria are actually products of resistances borrowed from another um, bacteria entirely. And then we can go a little bit further, especially recently. There is a new technology in the DNA world, new as in the last seven, eight years, um, called CRISPR. This stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. And after this was discovered, we found that we could actually use this to help modify genes quite quickly, and most importantly, quite cheap. 
In some cases, we change the allele, the individual piece of the gene that um, will code for a different sort of protein. On other times, we can insert a completely new gene. We can destroy the gene that's there. And so we found this pairing of a system, the CRISPR and Cas9, that allows us to do amazing things. And I mentioned cheap. Uh, I tried to look up how much it would cost for me to buy it right now on the internet. And I think that you can get a pretty decent system for about $1,000 to find a way to insert it, the specific short gene into your, your sequence. So if I wanted to change something about myself right now, I could spend $1,000 and like grow three inches? I, I wish. Uh, I think that what we're going to be able to target is that you could change a piece of DNA that you already have a single strand into having one more tiny little thing. So not $1,000 to design your own baby, but $1,000 to get a little bit closer. Aside from that being absolutely like affordable for a lot of people to do this at home, I definitely don't think I have any expertise in actually utilizing it. I've heard that CRISPR could be used to essentially eliminate the need for antibiotics in the future because we can use this technology to attack uh, disease in a way that we typically use medicine for. Do you have any um, idea and how like the capabilities of that in the future? Yeah, I feel like that's a pretty quick and dirty direct application. Essentially take the bacteria's immune system and put it into our own. We would just find specific CRISPR sequences that would correlate with the virus or bacteria of concern. But on the flip side, we could also do something much more complicated and develop resistances before the bacteria were to get there. So while a great treatment for a specific infection, you might be able to make it more generalized um, by inserting a specific gene sequence. And then we could also produce babies that are immune to all bacterial infections with CRISPR, right? Uh, Not yet, but maybe someday. (laughs) So this is the, the, I guess this is the range of how we can influence what kind of baby or the, or the character traits that our babies have from natural Darwinian selection, where if I'm six foot four and I, I choose to uh, get with somebody that's, you know, also six foot four, we're going to potentially have tall kids all the way through this direct modification of their DNA. Yeah, it's, uh, it's essentially the next tool we have in our toolkit. It won't be the last, but it's the most recent, the most recent one we have. Mm. And so this plus the cost is what's even bringing us to this discussion today, because now it's feasible for people to modify their baby more directly in ways that they weren't able to previously. Yeah. And that's a great point. The cost also drove the research too. So if any lab could get this for really cheap, the research was just forwarding so, so, so quickly that we now have the technology to understand how to use it in a Um, Some would say in a safe way. It sounds like we have this wonder procedure that can, as we've already mentioned, potentially make us immune to diseases. So this moves us to the first part of the conversation, which I guess is what people should think of first, which would probably be, all right, what can we cure using this technology? And that seems pretty straightforward, right? If we have the capacity to prevent babies from experiencing illnesses or conditions before they're even born shouldn't we be using it? So let's look at where some of the data is for adults. I think that's a great place to kind of begin because it's a little bit easier to understand. And then we can kind of bring it back down to how we can kind of predict things and and go forward for the babies. So right now there's a couple of different trials for some of these genetic modifications through the CRISPR system. One of the really cool ones is sickle cell disease. Um, There's currently an ongoing trial to identify if we can actually reverse the problems caused by sickle cell disease. What happens is the blood literally becomes a sickle and starts cutting into the vessels of the, of the bloodstream, causing exquisite pain, predominantly present in people of African descent. We're getting to the point now where we can show benefits in those populations, where CRISPR, when applied, can start reducing the quantity of those sickling events. And so that's shown benefit in those specific individuals. Other conditions have been explored. HIV is a, is a target that's been discussed a couple of times. And that can kind of lead us over to the baby side of things. In China in 2015, it was announced that CRISPR had actually been applied to um, a pair of IVF twins. So in this case, what they did was they actually modified a gene that is commonly affected by the HIV virus and essentially possibly made these two individuals immune to HIV infections. And IVF being in vitro fertilization. So it sounds like they're using these new gene editing technologies alongside 
of in vitro fertilization to kind of reap the benefits here? Yeah, exactly. And and uh, you raise a good point. With, with IVF or in vitro fertilization, you have the egg and sperm outside of the body. And so you can apply things directly to the um, forming embryo. And in that case, unlike an adult where you have to apply the uh, CRISPR technology to each and every cell that's affected, the babies are still developing. And so if you catch it early on, you can actually have the, all of the future cell lines affected by this change. Mm. So actually it, it has, even though the research has been predominantly done in adults thus far, it has more potential in babies. But by far, by far. Were those IVF twins actually allowed to become born? I know that other research, they've had limits on how far in the process, how many days an embryo is allowed to exist when they've done testing on it. What is the limit of um, the testing in this particular scenario? So these twins were actually allowed to be born. We don't have any understanding because of some of the rules um, uh, of the governing body in China about following twin deliveries. But from my understanding, they are born. They may indeed have resistance. Um, I think there's evidence to support that they had the gene modification successfully performed, but we don't know if they're truly resistant to HIV. And it would probably be unethical to actually test that. I would think so. <laughs> yeah, that, that raises a good question. Like how th- this, this technology being relatively new, especially when applied to children, um, are there any cases where we can say for certain that like X or Y has been accomplished? It's challenging. In some cases, yes, especially in the adult side, when we can say that the person is experiencing less sickling events, for instance. But in the, I mean, because we don't have any IVF babies that are born that we've studied thoroughly, we can't really say that we've been successful thus far. In many of the countries of the world that are doing this research, they have, uh, as Kelly mentioned, pretty strict limits as to how far these IVF embryos can go before the process needs to be stopped. They're not allowed to be implanted, which means that we have a little bit of a proof of concept without much of a successful baby in front of us. So it sounds like we have, if we have the capacity to sort of vaccinate children genetically against diseases before they've even contracted them, that's pretty great. I mean, to me, are there any you know, are there any downsides? Are there any like ethical quandaries that this would bring up? It's a really good point. And one that we don't know the answer to, which makes it even more complicated. So for instance, I just mentioned about sickle cell disease being this terrible thing that causes a sickling event, cutting open your blood vessels and terrible things. On the flip side, having a single gene of sickle cell, um, sickle cell trait protects you against malaria. And so this is probably why Darwinian evolution favored it. It allowed you allowed people who were constantly exposed to malaria to survive it better. Only when two of those same traits came together did we have the disease. And so if that was eradicated from the population, whether artificially or through some fancy gene modification, and malaria is still prevalent in those areas, you could you could cause serious damage. So I would say that's one thing. And that's an that, that brings up an interesting sort of side note too, because I've I've read studies on where people have suggested using CRISPR, speaking of malaria, on mosquito populations, where you could, you could literally make mosquitoes infertile and then effectively eradicate mosquitoes. And them, you know, being the, being the bearer of malaria, which is the number one killer in a couple big portions of the world, again, seems like a good thing, but we're not really sure what kind of impacts that would have further on down the line. In, in the ecosystem. And it sounds like similarly here, something that might seem good on face value in our body or for our babies might have unintended consequences later on. Yeah. And there's a couple of different examples on that. I do hope you invite me back for the uh, designer mosquitoes. Uh, <laughs> podcast. Um, but yeah, there's even some thought that like, what about genes that might, we don't know the function of that we might accidentally edit or things that we didn't know were helpful. So sickle cell trait was one where we knew it was helpful before we affected it. But um, there's evidence that certain traits protected against people against the bubonic plague. And some of these polymorphisms or random uh, mutations that happen in the population 
might be protective for things that happen in the future that we just haven't experienced it yet. For instance, we don't know yet, but we've just discovered that astronauts, for instance, have are subject to anemia just by being in space. Well, what if we discover in the future that one of the genes that we have available to us um, in some patients or some people in the population might protect them against that trait? And if it happens to be associated with um, green eye color, getting rid of that might affect their ability to become astronauts in the future. Mm. Risky stuff. Don't want to eventually have a butterfly effect take off because you're trying to make a kid malaria proof. It'll happen. <laughs> but uh, CRISPR is not the only way in which people have some sort of uh, possibility or actual effect on future generations when it comes to genetics. There's the pre-pregnancy genetic screening that some people go through to find out if they're both carrying recessive genes and don't want to pass anything really damaging on to their children. Um, sperm donors, egg donors also go through these types of screening as well. So that when people need to utilize those services, they know that they're not going to be potentially having a child with a, a condition like cystic fibrosis. Um, when it comes to those types of screening, when it's really for a genetic condition that would have an adverse effect, that seems to be well accepted as standard practice. But what other things do we have the potential for screening for that we can selectively decide not to partner with somebody as a result of finding out about? An interesting point, because there's lots of conditions that we know have are you're genetically predisposed to because of your specific gene set, because of your genome. And so we could essentially be able to identify any of those ahead of time and potentially target them. On the flip side, there's a lot of conditions that we can just say that you're predisposed to, but something else needs to happen before it actually causes a problem. So I would say that most conditions we have nowadays, we have a couple of genetic things that are associated with the development of the condition. Um, others, you really do need two trait, two genes from one from each parent to say that you'll have the condition. So I think those will be easy targets. The genetic predisposition ones, I think will be a little bit more of a challenge to identify whether or not we really want to target those with, with um, the genetic modification. This has become pretty standard practice in pre-pregnancy or prenatal care, you know, to try and eliminate the potentiality of, of these things before it happens. I do think that this taking it to the next level, at least technologically, might raise a couple of ethical concerns, one of which being just the expense of it. As much as we're saying $1,000 is not that big of a deal, um, you know, for a lot of people, it is a big deal. So do you think that if we, this is going to get a little bit science fiction-y, but I, I guess looking ahead, is this going to move us towards a system where there are people who can afford to have healthy babies free from these conditions and a class of people who cannot? And would that be a reason to deny the people who could afford it access to this kind of treatment? Sounds like you just watched Gattaca. Yeah. I mean, uh, there, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of movies that, or and TV shows that kind of have this premise of, you know, if we have access to healthier, longer lives, but that costs uh, at a restrictive level, you know, that denies a, a huge portion of the population, the ability to access it. Does that make it what, what seems like a good thing at first, does that make it actually potentially um, ethically questionable. Maybe there's an ethical consideration to have for the things that we do already that are not CRISPR necessarily. It costs money to do genetic screening. It costs money to use a sperm donor of a, a reputable one. I'm sure you could like ask a friend, but <laughs> like those are things that are prohibitively expensive for some people to go through reputable channels to find out accurate medical data for people. So it's already, there's already a, a class divide essentially in terms of how much people are able to determine the genetic future of their children. Another ethical consideration that also has a lot to do with both the genetic determination we have over future children and the costs associated with doing so would be the newer phenomenon of savior siblings, which began in about the late 90s, early 2000s with a family that specifically had a child who was suffering from a condition that needed a specific treatment. And that specific treatment would be to have another child that did not have the same genetic condition. And that child's cord blood would be used to basically save the life of their older sibling. So the Nash family had a baby born 
via IVF in the year 2000, they selected between, I think, 15 and 30 embryos altogether. And they tested to make sure that this one particular embryo was negative for the condition. And they had that baby specifically to save the life of their other child, which raises a lot of concerns about how much we use people and non-consenting humans for this sort of thing. And I I think one thing to note, and this, I don't want to get us too far off of topic because it's an entirely different debate, but as we mentioned, a lot of times these, these techniques are paired with in vitro fertilization. And when you do undergo in vitro fertilization, um, there are a lot of embryos that are not being used, that are being created and then not used, which there's a, there's a significant portion of people who, who view that as also uh, ethically wrong, tantamount to murder. In addition to the concerns about what happens to the family and the child who was born specifically to be the savior sibling, there are also critics of a process like this, not just the savior sibling process, but IVF as a whole because of how many embryos are created and arguably let go to waste if they're not utilized. They can frequently be destroyed when a family decides that they don't need them anymore. Uh, And that um, troubles a lot of people. And there are a lot of critics of IVF, specifically the Catholic church and other institutions like that. It's a whole complicated mess of things when we're talking about this particular ethical situation. And I, I do think it's important to note that even in this category where we are saving lives, we are curing diseases that, uh, again, there's a sort of metaphysical spiritual debate that happens at the same time as to the status of these embryos, but important to at least take into consideration that that is also a ramification of this process. But I think one of the more interesting questions about this is the amount that a person has to contribute to their family by being a savior sibling before they're even even able to consent one way or the other. They're being brought into existence literally to have part of their body or a byproduct of their body harvested to save someone else's life. Yeah. I, I, I don't know for all the, the, for all the reasons that people have kids, this seems like a pretty good one. You know, people have kids uh, to maintain farm operations, right? Because they're scared that when they get old, there's not going to be anybody to care for them. Uh, you know, just, for vanity reasons, um, you know, so I, I, I suppose everybody has to wrestle with the, why was I born question? But if the reason you were born was to save the life of somebody else, it doesn't seem like such a bad option. Yeah. I don't know that anybody ever has a kid specifically just for the benefit of the kid. It's a very jaded view. <laughs> normally that's, normally that's my job on the podcast. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so let's, let's move to something a little bit more in the gray area here. Designer baby number one is the designer baby that we create free from diseases and pre-cured of any potential harmful conditions. Uh, Designer baby number two uh, falls still within the medical category, but the conditions that we would be uh, quote unquote curing, again, are, are a little bit less black and white. Utilizing some of the technologies that we've been discussing, parents who are currently taking advantage of in vitro fertilization are able to screen embryos through pre-implantation genetic diagnoses. Exactly. So what PGD is, is a test that can be done after the uh, egg and the sperm meet in the Petri dish, essentially. After the third day of the development of the fetus, they can test for genetic conditions such as Down syndrome and cystic fibrosis and things like that. I think it's important to note that this isn't typically done unless they know that both parents have the potential to pass on a severe condition to the baby that they're trying to create. They usually find out that element of the process through um, prenatal genetic diagnosis or genetic counseling, which is where they test for like. 300 or so common conditions and see if both parents are potentially carriers. 
And people can do that whether or not they're going to be doing IVF. Um, people do that when they're trying to find out um, if the sperm donor that they're selecting is going to be able to have a healthy child or produce a healthy child anonymously. Um, but typically when it's done for IVF with the pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, that is like a secondary part of the genetic testing process that happens with the, the preconception screening of both biological parents. And so a lot of this is already done. And in the near future, it's highly likely that the things we will be able to identify will be expanded. We could be sure that babies are born with the ability to hear or see, potentially preventing things like deafness or blindness. Uh, similarly, conditions like dwarfism could be avoided. Now, none of these things are typically immediately life-threatening, but I think if the vast majority of potential parents were asked, do you want to have the ability to guarantee that your child can avoid the possibility of being born with any of these traits? They would most probably say yes. Yeah, we can think about this as giving parents the tools to ensure that the children that they're trying to have don't experience specific barriers that could adversely affect their survival um, or their quality of life. When we're talking about genetic conditions that are as severe as this. And uh, another thing I think that it's important to recognize is the challenges that come with having a child born with conditions that you're unfamiliar with and the effect that might have on your ability to parent. Um, you know, I'll be honest, if, if I had a blind child right now, I wouldn't know what sort of things I would have to do to ensure that they were able to live as functionally as possible in society. I'd, I'd like to think that I'd put the work in to learn and, but, you know, having a child is a massive amount of work and compiling more and more challenges on top of that is oftentimes something that parents aren't willing or capable of taking on. And we see that bear out when we're looking at the issues surrounding prenatal screening for Down syndrome. So it's estimated that about 67% of pregnancies which show a likelihood that the baby born would have Down syndrome are terminated, um, which is basically two-thirds of the pregnancies where Down syndrome is, is uh, shown as being a likely outcome for that child. The screening for Down syndrome happens usually between the 10th and 13th weeks of pregnancy, and physicians recommend that all pregnant people are screened, but especially those who are over the age of 35, since that results in a higher likelihood that a pregnancy would have, um, the, the baby would potentially be born with down syndrome. So if they were instead going to do pre-screening rather than doing it when the baby is already 10 to 13 weeks old in the, in the womb, um, pre-screening could avoid the trauma of these folks terminating an otherwise wanted pregnancy. It's also increasingly difficult to find abortion care after uh, the initial six weeks of pregnancy in some areas. So if you select the embryos ahead of time that don't have Down syndrome, you guarantee that the baby born would not have Down syndrome. You could avoid both the trauma of terminating a pregnancy or the trauma of being forced to carry out a pregnancy would be terminating if you have the option to. Mm. So then this is not necessarily a choice between selecting out embryos with conditions versus having babies with those conditions, but selecting out embryos versus potentially uh, terminating those pregnancies. And while both of those outcomes seem less than ideal, to put it mildly, it would make it seem as though providing this option to parents might be the better of two worlds. Potentially, but there is also the discussion about if we had a society that was more conducive to accommodating folks who have disabilities, such as Down syndrome, such as deafness or blindness, people maybe would not be as reluctant to have children with those conditions when they're given options like designing their babies. Do we think that's a realistic option? The society would actually accommodate folks with disability rather than mm -hmm. making them seem like extra work. I mm -hmm. think that we're getting towards that point in society. I think it's a possible outcome, but maybe like a hundred years from now, like it, it's so slowly getting to that level of progressive accommodation. And do you think that this 
uh, ability were to come about of having designer babies would have a, a negative impact on that progress? Potentially, if fewer people are born with disabilities, then the impetus of accommodation becomes less urgent, less present, less visible. Mm, that's definitely true. I, I'll, although at the same time, it does seem as though we're forcing people to be born as martyrs for a greater cause, hoping that society at large is moving towards being more empathetic. Maybe this is just me taking on the jaded role in the, in the podcast again. The people are mean. I mean, if you're going to argue that the only reason to have these children who have disabilities would be for society to become more progressive for people who have disabilities, that might be inappropriate. <laughs> but there are, you know, people who are plenty happy who exist with disabilities in this world. But accommodation certainly makes it even easier to have a fulfilling life. I definitely think that that, that argument carries validity, especially in the blind or deaf communities where there are actually deaf parents who are looking to proactively select children who are deaf. So rather than using this technology to try to avoid having a child who cannot hear, they're looking for a child who cannot hear. And I think the the thought process there is as the parents are part of this community, they understand the culture, they understand the challenges, they understand what has to be done. And having a child who shares those similar experiences actually gives them the ability to connect with that child in a, in a deeper way than they would be able to if they live with this condition, but the child does not. And I think that's not too different than people who are picking who they want to have children with because of specific characteristics outside of the issue of genetic selection and designing babies. For instance, people who seek out sperm donors or egg donors may be looking for people with similar ethnic backgrounds. For instance, people may be looking for another person to have a child with who has a German background or another person who has a, a Jewish background. But there are people in these communities who are already selecting parents who have similar characteristics as them in the hopes that they might have a child who also has similar characteristics, such as deafness and blindness, like we're talking about, but potentially also dwarfism. People want to look like their family. People want them, they want to have shared experiences with their family members, including their children, and having these sorts of similarities help facilitate that. Mm, interesting. So this designer baby technology doesn't just give us the ability to screen out for these conditions, but potentially to screen in for these conditions to help families feel more conducive, uh, to share a connection between spouses, parents, and their children. Yeah, I think if it's valuable enough that people have children who look like them or that they look like their children, I could see a future in which people say, I actively want to guarantee in some way to the best that I can through science that my family looks like each other and has the same experiences as, that each other has. Certainly, it seems as though this technology behind creating designer babies is providing more options for parents and whether they utilize those options to select in for a child that more resembles them or select out looking for embryos that are able to avoid different characteristics that might make their baby's life more difficult. It, it, it seems like either way, those are better than some of the alternatives. I think it's important to note that a lot of those decisions are being made without us having the capability to screen for everything anyway. And we're doing our best as people to make informed decisions and try to shape outcomes, but there still is the element of chance that is going to be present until we fully eradicate it through advanced genetic screening or genetic editing. I think that there is still a certain amount of control that people are exercising over what kind of child they're potentially having. But I think the difference is currently that control is happening after the fact. We mentioned situations where pregnancies have to be terminated because of, of certain conditions that the embryo might have. And I think that there's a moral distinction between that and what we're suggesting 
in this episode through the creation of a designer baby and the use of in vitro fertilization, we're able to select the specific embryo ahead of time that we know is significantly more likely to be able to see or to be able to hear. And the fact that this is taking place even before the embryo has been implanted means that we avoid the moral implications of retroactively terminating or, you know, quote, curing these conditions? If we get to the point where we're terminating a pregnancy with Down syndrome, that is pretty far in the process. However, if we're getting to the point where we're selecting the desirable embryo instead of the undesirable embryo, that is still a reactionary decision to something that has already happened. And that would be the creation of the embryo in the first place. So we're not really getting ahead of the actual conception. If we want to get into a conception debate sometime, we probably mm-hmm. will, but it's just earlier in the process. It's, it's, you know, 10 to 12 weeks earlier than in the current process. It's also important to note that for IVF in particular, the way that it is done is that many embryos are typically created and only one is usually implanted at a time. It's usually determined whether or not it would be viable. And that's one of the ones that will be implanted, but there's otherwise uh, a sense of randomness about which one is actually selected and which ones go to waste. So if we know that only maybe 10% of the embryos that are created will actually be implanted, wouldn't it make sense to select the embryo that has the best chance at getting a child that is healthy, happy, and has all the characteristics that a parent is looking for. There's a lot of ethical questions to take into consideration here from, does it matter where along the process this decision is being made to, you know, whether or not this category of conditions, deafness, blindness, Down syndrome, et cetera, are even things that we are right to be avoiding in the first place. I think there's also another distinction within Down syndrome that makes it somewhat unique from some of these other pieces. Um, We talk about the different senses, blindness and deafness. However, in Down syndrome, there is a cognitive impairment that's paired with it. And while I could see the argument for a change of how somebody perceives the world around them with their sense of hearing or their sense of sight, I wonder how much the same argument can persist for somebody who's saying that they should be cognitively impaired and having a cognitive impairment would be something that is anything other than not desired. Mm -hmm. But, but does that then curing it ahead of time or making that judgment, does that not assign a value to people who, who have been born and are living right now with that same condition? That's an interesting point. I mean, if you're starting to see a whole community of people who get to view a generation born with nobody like them in it, that has probably some pretty devastating psychological effects. Like, dang, if we could have stopped you from being born, we would have. Yeah, we're going to breed you out of existence. We've been tiptoeing around this, but that's ultimately eugenics, essentially, is to breed characteristics out of our population, either with non-invasive means of making certain partners have babies and not allowing other people to have babies, or in the sense of actually editing genes so that certain things are not in the population any longer. And I think that if you tell people the thing that you live with, the thing that we don't like about you. We're not going to allow people to have children like that anymore. I think that has a pretty devastating effect. And I think that there's a possibility that we will agree that there are some things that we do want to quote breed out of existence. And then we have to find the line of acceptability between whether something else is crossing that line of like actually illegitimate, actually unethical to breed out of existence. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it difficult. You know, we always, we say on this show a lot that we don't want to be black and white with our distinctions, but everything's on a spectrum. And I guess that's where we're, that's where we're at in this conversation right now is coming from HIV, where most certainly we would want to avoid that, presumably, before it happens to something like, which we'll get to, I want a blonde kid where does this fall? And is this on the, you know, is something like cystic fibrosis or deafness or down syndrome is which side of the scale is it on? Is it on the, this is something we should 
look to cure or is it on the this is not something that the word cure should even be applied to you know this is just a different type of person and it would be eugenics if we were to try to eliminate it so then i wonder if there's a list these are the traits we don't want these are the ones we don't we do and there's probably a consensus somewhere for some of these pieces but i agree i don't think there's going to be a um a list that is universally agreed upon by everybody and that's what makes it difficult though so say you have one set of parents who say yes we 100% want to avoid our child having to be born deaf and then you have another set of parents who say that's straight up eugenics we actually want to and this has happened in France we want to actively choose a deaf child uh, both of the parents were deaf and they say we we want a child who is going to experience the world in the same way that we do i know we're talking morally here but uh, if you're a government how do you legislate that or how do we create a list isaac when when people are on such opposite ends of the spectrum Gosh, you use the the word sets of parents. What happens if one parent doesn't want to do it? Like, who gets the mm. choice? Mm. Whoever's <laughs> been whoever's been genetically engineered to be smarter. <laughs> and there's just so many complicated questions that are coming out of this. But I think the moment you actually start putting a list together is the moment that it starts to get out of control. <laughs> like, I don't want to see. I don't like. I, I have a. I have a. I have a heart murmur. I was born with a heart defect. And if my parents had gone through IVF and had pre-screened all of the embryos and they didn't pick me because I have a heart murmur, like that would pretty much like really suck for me. Right. But I, that would make the podcast a lot more difficult to, to produce that. Yeah. And it, in addition That's my to main like, concern. how would I, mean, I some heart murmurs that? are described as musical. Maybe you have one of those. It sounds like an espresso maker. I used to have to go to the cardiologist a lot. Um, But I mean, there are plenty of things that like you can live with, but if like a parent says this embryo has a heart issue, I don't want to bring a baby into the world that could have a heart issue. That could be life-threatening. They could be born and then immediately die or something like that. Like how, how far do you know the severity of the condition at that stage? And that's just with selection using IVF where they can actually screen embryos, which is increasingly becoming uh, a practice that is done. Aside from even like actually crafting the genetic code of of a baby, you can really like weed out the ones you don't want that way. So it's scary. That might be an interesting way of thinking about it too. Are you eliminating embryos that you don't want or are you selecting the one that you do? And does that change anything morally? And I think, I think the, the key operator there is like, or design the one. So not just choosing or, or like selecting, but like with the technology we have, we can choose many, many, if not potentially someday, all of the attributes of this, this process. Mm-hmm. Right now, when we're talking about like the selection process, you're screening out ones that you made by say random chance, but you could pick them and redesign them to be whatever you wanted. Hmm. Well, all right. So speaking of that process, and since we already jumped into it and we brought up eugenics, the the E word, um, let's talk about the part of this debate that brings us probably the closest to it. Um, literally designer babies. Um, this is not screening out conditions, but this is, I would like a blonde haired blue-eyed baby who is six foot four and going to make millions of dollars in the NBA so that I can retire comfortably. So, and again, we are kind of doing some of these pieces. I mean, uh, when I, a light-eyed person, marry a light-eyed person, we're selecting for that eye color. Um, I'm finding a partner that allowed me to have the genes that I wanted. I I, I could select, uh, well, I couldn't, my partner could have selected a donor um, that matched the description of the person that she wanted. So in some degrees, we're still, we're doing this right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people who, even if they're not consciously doing it, a lot of the decision framework that goes into partner selection is based off of who is most likely to create offspring with me that will actually survive. Um, so you're looking for all these fertility indicators, but you're also looking for overall health and 
strength and things like that. And we, we've engaged in designing our species basically from the outset, but we just didn't consciously engage in it. We just kind of let it happen in the background processes of our brains. One thing to think about is like, uh, Darwinian evolution made a lot of sense when we had natural predators and an environment that was actively trying to kill us at all times. Um, there was a phase of social evolution that occurred. And some people may say that this is the next phase of our evolution, one of our own design. And so maybe these aspects of making people immune to disease, but also stronger, faster, longer hair color, something, maybe those are just like the next phase of the evolutionary process. But there are people who attempted to do that already and were really awful, right? <laughs> and lost the war. Well, it, there are in a lot of countries, it was a point of pride if a mother had many children because, and I'm not talking just about Germany, I'm talking about a lot of countries that face a population crisis, but they didn't want just like any people in their country. They wanted people that had a specific background, an ethnic tie to that country or what have you. So we've kind of manipulated things to a point that we've almost universally declared to be unethical before we brought the genetic factor in. But again, does, does the fact that this is happening beforehand change that? Like any other method I can think of that's been used historically has been retroactive, whereas this one is preemptive. Does that make it okay compared to all those others that we would almost universally classify as immoral? Further, we could take it as a little bit of a Thanos approach of like no individual part of this whole thing. It's randomized who gets these uh, genes, who gets these benefits. It doesn't have to only be the rich. What if we applied it universally to all? Um, and made everybody get these traits that we wanted. Mm. Yeah, the elitist argument that we made earlier is is potentially more of a criticism of the fucked up healthcare system. Sorry <laughs> for the two people on the podcast that work in the system, but <laughs> more more of a criticism of that system than it is a criticism of this specific technology. Like if we had a more equitable system, then that wouldn't be a concern. But if we're designing people if we're literally designing babies to give them the best advantage possible, knowing what else exists in society, such as intense amounts of bias and racism and things like that, are we literally going to just see blonde hair, blue eyed babies as a result? Because those are the human beings on this planet that have the most advantage in, in the status quo, political and social environment. Well, I, I think that potentially something we could look to to answer that question is uh, comes in donor selection and the surrogacy market and a Eastern European donor egg or surrogate mother costs twice as much as one from India. And a donor egg from the United States costs almost 10 times as much. So A, this is already happening. B, the way in which it's already happening definitely seems problematic. So does this just exacerbate those issues? Sure. Yes. <laughs> it certainly seems to, huh? If we were to invite other traits, not rather than the ones that like are are quite vain, but ones that like obviously pair with an advantage. Let's say a, a nice trait that lets you move your fingers faster so you can play the piano better. Would it be worse to edit the genome to make that happen for a kiddo rather than and, and is that any different than um the wealthy uh individual who pays for piano lessons, aren't they two means to the same end? And why would one be different than the other in terms of how bad or good it is? Mm. Yeah. Something like that. Or, or we mentioned stronger. What about intelligence? Is, yeah, it bad, is it bad to choose smarter babies? I mean, it's the same advantage as if you had a, a, a ton of different um, private tutors, lectures that gave you the best opportunities having your parents pay for a great college. It might even be cheaper to go the editing route. I don't know. I've tutored some kids a lot that still weren't smart at the end of it. <laughs> for any of them listening, yeah. I'm not talking about you. <laughs> I guess because a lot of the things about nurturing a child into the outcome you want are still so unpredictable because if a child just doesn't have natural aptitude or they are 
unwilling to become what the parents envision. You know, they just absolutely hate the piano, for instance. The gene editing aspect of this would be a guaranteed outcome in a sense that nurturing wouldn't. And I think that that also takes away a lot of the agency that I think is an important thing. Uh, Children don't have a lot of control over their situation and can't really steer the kind of adult they're going to become. But making them come out of the womb that way seems like a step too far. It's less it's less guarantee than aptitude and like ability to acquire those skills. I mean, even if we were to give them the traits that might have a slight advantage in those categories, it's nothing to say that they would actually get the training they need to acquire the skills they need, or that they would have the fortitude, the dedication, the discipline to actually become a, a master piano player. So I don't think it's as guaranteed as, as it might sound just to edit the genome. The nature does still play a huge, the nurture still does play a huge role in this whole thing. What if I genetically engineer a child to have self-discipline and to love piano? <laughs> you know, the, uh, the, this is a little bit off topic, but that's why I'm here. The number one indicator of success in a child is the marshmallow test. Have either of you heard of this? Yes. That is actually bullshit. It seems seems legit to me. Because they they tested it on children who come from with food security, and they tested it again with children who come without food security, and that was one of the main determinants about whether or not they took the marshmallow. So, for our listeners who haven't heard of this uh, this test, they leave a kid in a room with one marshmallow on the table in front of them, and they tell this kid, "If in ten minutes we come back and the marshmallow is still there, we're going to give you." a second marshmallow, then you have two marshmallows. And the kids that wait and get the second marshmallow are supposed to be more successful. And the kids that eat the one marshmallow are supposed to be less successful. So if we could find the genetic code that makes somebody dislike marshmallows, guaranteed success. I need that one. I'm 100% a one marshmallow person. Chris, for me, that. Crisper me that sounds like a really great tagline. Crisper me the marshmallow. Crisper me that is the is the slogan for my genetic um, editing company that I put on a white van and drive around town <laughs> editing genomes. There's there's something interestingly moral about randomness, and I think we're kind of touching on that throughout this episode. Like if you don't know what the kid's going to be. And it just comes out, however, randomly, then it's hard to assign a moral value to that. Right. Whereas if you get to choose the kid, even if it seems as though the traits are better, that that choice turns its existence into something that's potentially immoral in a, in a weird sort of way. I think we live in a, a society that has a very strong myth of meritocracy that you earn everything that you get and you have to actually work for it. And that's brought on by the myth that everybody's born with equal opportunity to do that. And as soon as we start to do something like this, that myth is going to degrade, which I think is good because it it is a myth because it's false. Not everybody has the same opportunities. Not everyone can earn the same success. So I guess maybe shattering the illusion would be a benefit of this. Mm. Well, that's like the Thanos. Um, Isaac brought up the Thanos thing. Like the, the reason Thanos kill half the world, but it's going to be random, has some like validity to it. Thanos had a point, guys. Oh, oh, I didn't know we we're going <laughs> to do that kind of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we're not that kind of podcast. But, you know, the people people do say that that's a defense that has popped up online, Mm -hmm. you know, overpopulation is a concern. Thanos had a point y'all, but that's a whole other discussion. Well, I I actually think that it does tie into this discussion though, because what if Thanos had said, I'm going to kill half of the population of the galaxy, but instead of it being random, I'm going to pick the less intelligent half, right? Or I'm going to pick the shortest the shortest 50% of beings in the of, of whatever species they happen to be in the universe, they're the ones that are going to be eliminated. Doesn't that make the decision all of a sudden like, okay, now the Avengers have a point? Well, I agree that there's like this sense of fairness that comes from having the randomness 
that really is the the argument for not having any design to our babies, not having any choices, not any any picks. But I think Kelly raised the point of like the illusion of the meritocracy. I mean, while it is an illusion that it is the sole factor that advances humanity, there is there is some degree of working hard, you can overcome your genetics. Um, that won't ever be true if your genetics are pre-selected. Oh man. So we have certainly some moral threads running through this entire conversation that apply to all of the scenarios that we've talked about. But that being said, I, I do think that we have identified three relatively distinct situations. We have along this spectrum that we've created uh, conditions that we almost certainly want cured. And then the on the other end, we have uh, conditions or character traits that are certainly dangerous to start saying, yeah, we want more of people like that. And then we have that gray area in the middle where some parents, some people would be pretty adamant about, I don't want a child born like that, or I don't want to live like that, or I am that, and my life is just as valuable as yours. And I would be upset if this part of my identity were eliminated. So with all of these scenarios and, and all of these things to consider, I suppose at the end of the episode here, Isaac, I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think? I'm, are, are designer babies a good thing? When are they a good thing? When are they not a good thing? How do you feel about it? So I, I'd say I'm a man of absolutes. I feel like the line needs to be very bold and not, and not up for interpretation. So for me, where I would draw the line on that spectrum I would say that we should cure the diseases that will kill individuals, the ones that are going to um, inevitably lead to somebody's death. And because that's the boldest line I could put somewhere on the spectrum that doesn't get too confusing, I feel like that's where I would end it. I don't feel like we should change how people interact with the world around them. We shouldn't change their predisposition for anything. And hopefully the technology will catch up to where when they're adults, they'll be able to make that decision themselves, but I don't want to make it. Hmm. But you also don't want the parents to make it. And I think that's, that's, what's difficult for me is, you know, we're talking about if, if we have a bright line like that, you are telling parents who might disagree with you that, Hey, I have decided that you are not allowed to take advantage of this technology. And that that's, that's difficult because I also know there's a lot of parents out there who I, w- I wouldn't want to be my parents. Um, so <laughs> I'm kind of torn on this one. This is, this is one of those episodes where at the end. I, I'm not really sure where I stand. I can see definitely arguments for trying to create a human that would live the best possible life. But then I also see the uncertainty that comes with how different people would define what constitutes the best possible life. And I think that makes this really difficult. I don't know. I'm not going to give an answer. You have to draw the line. That's, I have to draw the line. <laughs> no, I don't. That's why I'm 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 one of the hosts. Oh gosh. I can make you draw it and then I can be totally <laughs> ambivalent about it. Kelly, Kelly how about please you? draw where, a line. Yeah, where Kelly, are you? Please Kelly? draw a line. Do we have a line? I don't you're gonna Isaac, Kelly, you're not gonna, you're gonna like this. Draw a line. <laughs> wants well, to draw a here, line. Here's the thing. I um I fundamentally agree with Isaac when it comes to what is best for society. But you also have to look at it from a perspective of somebody who is planning to have a child is going to want what's best for their child, right? Most people have very good intentions for their children, and they want to do the things that are going to make sure that their children have every advantage, every opportunity, things like that. So I think that I can understand how a parent would say, I want a child that is going to survive, but I'm also going to want a child that is guaranteed to thrive in some cases. Mm -hmm. So that is where I think it becomes very complicated is when you bring human emotion into this. I think that there are plenty of ways that people dictate the outcomes of what kind of child they're going to have with acceptable measures like genetic screening for cystic fibrosis, totally acceptable. You don't want to have a child that is definitely going to have like a debilitating lung disorder that that's no good for anybody. Right. But what if like I had a child that could do anything that could dunk on Josh? Like that would be great, right? Like every advantage possible. So I think that there are going to be people who agree that there are things that are best for society 
let's make sure that nobody has debilitating disease. But in my case, could I get a little, you know, blonde hair in the mix, right? So I guess the line should be where Isaac has drawn it. But I don't think fundamentally that's what's going to happen because everybody's going to want to cross that line. Everybody's going to want to for their own families. And a lot of people will be able to afford to. Josh, I'll, all I will say is I hope you enjoy your slippery slope to, towards eugenics. <laughs> well, Isaac, I, we, we do really appreciate you uh, coming on the episodes so that we could totally throw you under the bus at the end of it. <laughs> I think it's been a really uh, interesting discussion. For those of you who are interested, alongside of each episode we release, we also typically post accompanying content, uh, photos, articles, things of that nature as well as uploading what we think are interesting articles on a variety of topics throughout the week. And we do this on both our Facebook and our Twitter. So if you'd like to follow us to get some more content, you can do so at IndubitablyPod on both of those platforms. Uh, We hope to see you there or at the very least next week in our episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining us today, Isaac. And we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks all.